Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Jane Foley, shall we? Rubber Bank Head of FX Strategy. She phones in from London. Jane, it's fantastic to have you with us. Let's just reflect on what the Fed has delivered and what's still to come through the next couple of weeks. Your thoughts, please. Well, I think really uh, I think we can see by the reaction of the, the, the markets this morning that I don't think that there is enough. And, and really, as, as long as this news uh, remains... Uh, such that we keep on getting an increase in, in the number of uh, coronaviruses in both the Europe and the US, that the market's going to assume that the real economy or the outlook for the real economy is going to carry on worsening, and, and therefore um, that the central banks are going to have to do more mon- uh, um, fiscal policy too, of course. So a lot more is going to um, have to come from there. But I think one thing that, that was in, in particular missing perhaps from, from the Fed's announcement, and this was the, the concerted, the concerted uh, action that was announced yesterday was coordinated with the ECB and the Bank of Japan and the BOE and the SMB. Now, these are all G10 central banks, and, and we've had new cheaper swap line provisions uh, for, the, for, the, for the G10. But there are going to be concerns about uh, corporates outside of the G10 area. Uh, what's going to happen with them? What if they cannot get a hold of uh, dollars? We've seen since the middle of last week, really, that the blowout in, in, in cross-country basis swaps, for instance, is that the pressure in the money market. And, of course, if we go back to 2008, we saw the Fed announce other emergency measures, a commercial paper funding facility, and then the commercial paper funding facilities uh, through um, the uh, limited company that was that was set up to provide um, a facility whereby companies outside of the G10 could could sell uh, to the, the Federal Bank of New York commercial paper and get dollar liquidity that way. And I think the market will be demanding that the Fed does something extra, like in 2008, to really reassure the markets that there is going to be ample dollar liquidity. And, and at least that way, it will be a, a, a one thing less, I think, for many corporates to worry about. Jane, yesterday around 5 p.m. Eastern time, when we got the response from the Federal Reserve, the 100 basis point rate cut, the futures markets for U.S. equities weren't open yet. And we looked for the to get some kind of initial read on the market response at the currency markets. And they'd been going crazy, the Aussie dollar in particular, uh, really sinking to a post-crisis low. And I'm trying to understand the volatility that we're seeing. Is this just a complete vacuum of information? Or is this a structural issue that's affecting all markets for some reason and creating a real dearth of liquidity that's potentially really problematic? Um, well, I, I think perhaps there's, there's a number of factors. I, I think, first of all, you know, looking at looking at the Aussie, looking at some other currencies, what we see here is, is dollar strength. So there is a scramble, really, to get hold of dollars. And this is because, of course, the, the, the dollar dominates the, the global payment system and people need dollars. But I think apart from that, I think the other signals that we're getting is, is the, the type of crisis that we have here. Um, now, the type of crisis, of course, is not a financial crisis. It is something to do with the real economy. Um, and yes, loans might be cheaper, but if you are an airline or if you are in the tourism industry or if you're a certain type of retailer, etc., it doesn't mean to say that you're going to have customers coming through your door this morning. And so from that point of view, we, we can really see uh, the, 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 the shortfalls really in monetary policy. It cannot put 
you know, demand back into the shops, given the type of crisis that we have. So monetary policy just has its limits. And, and therefore, you know, we do need this fiscal type of support, maybe a concerted uh, type of fiscal response to try and reassure, uh, reassure the firms that are most acutely affected by this, that their businesses can sustain through this crisis um, and that they won't lose um, all of their employees. Because immediately, if you lose all your employees, you have this knock-on effect. You have this multiplier effect where there's people who lose their jobs and they don't go to the shops and they don't they don't buy and you suddenly have this potential for this really sharp down or sharp slowdown in in activity jane we can't handicap this deep into the unknown impossible to model most of the people listening to this program will agree with you on all of those things where we can have a discussion is how you think the dollar will behave in the environment like the one we're about to enter There were doubts when times were good over the last couple of years about what would happen in the next downturn and how the dollar would behave. Would it maintain those risk mitigating characteristics? Would we buy the dollar when things got bad? Can we say with some confidence that that's still the case, that the dollar will still be that currency people flee to? Yes, I would agree with that. And I would go a bit further and I'd say that the market has no choice uh, but to buy the dollars. If you think about the dollar's position as a, as a global transactional currency, no other currency comes close. It's plain and simple. If you are um, in India and you need to buy oil, you need to have dollars. If you need to buy almost any other commodities, you need to have dollars. And, and, and this is why, if you look now at the money market, if you look at, at cross-currency basis swaps, you will see that they blew out in the middle of, of, of last week. And this is a sign that, that banks were willing to pay more to get hold of their dollars. Corporates are, are, are potentially right now uh, looking around, making sure that they have access to, to dollars through their banks, through uh, their um, funding lines. Um, and, and banks are, are looking to see, oh, my goodness, how many of these funding lines do we have open? What, what could be the potential uh, drawdown of, of dollars from us? So dollars in a, in a crisis is, is, is where the shortages usually are and, and the fact that we have these signs really since the beginning of or since the middle really of, of last week of the blowout yeah. in, in demand for dollars is, is where the crisis is. Well Jane thinking about how that's reflected in the price of G10 right now quite clearly there will be some exceptions to that dollar strength rule the Japanese yen and the Swiss franc too where people have really been punished and it's been brutal to try and get a clear direction on euro dollar over the last month meant to be some real liquidity there some depth and it's been really really choppy at one point it was about just trading the possibility the potential that europe would go into a downturn that was the start of february then it was about unwinding some big big trades going back home to the euro if that was your funding currency euro bid up towards 115 and now negative again in and around those kind of levels jane walk me through the dynamics that are going to shape the euro in the coming months well, I think really the, the euro, the euro-dollar exchange rate, has probably misled a few people in, in terms of dollar strength. I think if you if you look broad-based, if you look through a huge range of currencies, you will see the dollar strength there. The, the euro has given a misleading signal, and I think this is because of what you've just described. Uh, there were the, the, the euro with a negative interest rate had been used as a, as a funding currency, and, and they of course reversed, and people covered their shorts, and the euro went higher. But I think if we look at, at what we have in Europe now in terms of fundamentals. I don't think they're particularly good for Europe. So, for instance, um, if you look at Italy, and uh, now clearly um, the coronavirus um, situation.
situation in Italy is extremely worrying there, um, without a shadow of a doubt, given that the country's in, in, in shutdown and given that there there is no sign yet that those cases have peaked. The economic backdrop can be worrying. People will be starting to worry or already worrying about the Italian banks, for instance. If we move on to Spain, um, the situation there is worsening. Um, if we go through France, maybe the situation there also worsening. So we can uh, pick out a number of European countries and we see uh, fundamentals getting getting worse. So from that point of view, um, I don't think the euro has got an awful lot about it uh, right now. So um, given that the, the, the dollar is being bought broadly because it is a global uh, payment system currency, um, I do think that uh, uh, euro dollar can slip. However, I think if you want to see where the, the dollar strength is, you should look away from euro dollar and you should look at a broader basket of currencies and that's where you see the dollar strength. Jane, great to catch up with you this morning. Appreciate your time. Jane Foley there, Rabobank head of FX Strategy, weighing in on the Fed's decision and on global currency markets. Credit very much in the driving seat at the moment. Let's bring in Mike Wilson, shall we? A guiding light for times like this. The team at Morgan Stanley, the chief US equity strategist, joins us on the phone now. Mike, fantastic to have you with us. Your call, your message to your clients on a morning like this morning. Well, look, first of all, the panic is you know happening in financial markets, and I think for good reason. I mean, there's a health crisis and a scare, and I, you know, I want to just first start by saying we're talking about financial markets, but you know there is a health issue, so... We just want to make sure we're sensitive to that in all of our commentary because uh, it is a, a personal tragedy in some cases. So let's let's focus on you know what the markets have already been telling us uh, for quite a while, uh, and we think this is uh, kind of where our view might be a little bit different than others. Is that we, we think we were heading towards kind of a recession, anyways. We clearly had, had no idea a virus uh, or you know an oil price shock was going to be the final kind of thing that tips us over, but there's always something. And so now we are, you know, heading towards a recession, uh, probably globally, uh, U.S. as well. And and the markets are quickly discounting that uh, from, a, from a period, by the way, when uh, none of that was being discounted, you know, several months ago. So it's just been that's why it's been so violent. And uh, we're getting to some very interesting price levels for uh, for assets that, you know, for longer term investors are attractive. And, and we will get through this. Uh, you know, we, we think, that, you know, obviously the actions last night, you know, people are disappointed, perhaps, uh, that the Fed can't do anything. But the, the reality is the Fed can't do anything about the virus, right? So they're going to do what they can, which is provide liquidity to markets so they function. And then when we can get past this and look forward again uh, to the recovery, then, you know, liquidity will be in place and, and we can stabilize and move forward. So this is a time for clients to to not do anything rash, right? This is not a time for uh, for people to sell everything and panic. We've, we've already had that. We've had a 27% decline in a straight line. And so that's pretty much a waterfall decline. Uh, to have another waterfall decline on top of that would be historically unprecedented, even in the, you know, the 20s and 30s or 1987, uh, areas like that, you usually get some relief. Okay, so we, we are expecting that at some point. The two things I'm focused on right now uh, to tell me that maybe the worst is getting behind us is the Treasury market, which is, has been the guiding light uh, to tell us all along that growth was continuing to slow. And I think it's interesting. That's not a, you know, it's not a guarantee, but it's interesting that Treasury yields are not making new lows uh, and did not make new lows last week either and later in the week when things really kind of came apart. So I think that's important. Um, I will continue to watch that. It will also tell me that the Treasury market's functioning, which is important, and that's you know, the Fed's concern and, and issue. But we're going to need more fiscal. And I think so. that's the other thing I'm really watching is 
how more how much more aggressive can uh, politicians get in the short term to uh, you know to indicate that they are going to do more fiscal policy because monetary can't do this on its own. So last week you told uh, myself and John and Tom that this was a time to start adding back risk, that this was actually potentially a buying opportunity. Goldman Sachs' David Costin came out over the weekend with a report saying that the S&P 500 could fall another 26% from Friday's close to 2000 if the economic fallout from the coronavirus deepens. Why do you not think that's the case? Well, that's always a possibility. Of course, it's a possibility, right? But, you know, we, we think that, you know, we're, this has been, I think where we're a little different, perhaps, than some others, is that we think this correction that we're going through right now is part of a bear market that began two years ago, right? And if you're, if you're really objective about what's been going on, the average stock and the average market has really gone nowhere for two years, and this is kind of a finishing move, it's ending in a recession. That's the way it typically works. Now we have to we have to get into that recession, and people have to acknowledge that. But it, if you can't tell me that you know markets haven't been discounting a pretty meaningful slowdown now for the past couple of years. That's why we've been trading very defensively. That's why Treasuries are already you know at record low levels even before uh, the virus hit and before the oil price uh, declines hit. I mean we've we've had signals all along, and so. All we're telling folks is, is that this is how thing, this is how moves kind of finish. Okay, the time to get really defensive was two years ago, uh, in terms of like being overweight treasuries, being overweight defensive areas and whatnot. And those and those types of strategies have worked extraordinarily well over the last two years. And so now, uh, if you were set up that way, now is the time to start thinking about re-risking, understanding that it's going to be extraordinarily volatile in the next month or two. It's going to be extraordinarily whippy. It's going to be extraordinarily dangerous to be trading this. Okay, that's not what we're advising people to do. But if you're in a diversified portfolio and you've had uh, some defensive uh, securities, you've probably actually done okay uh, over this period. Mike, really thoughtful stuff. Appreciate your time this morning and wishing the best to your team and those at Morgan Stanley as well. Mike Wilson there, Morgan Stanley Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. Your hopes and dreams in the equity market that used to be funded by the bond investor? No more. This is about protecting ratings and meeting coupon payments. And we'll get to that right now. We can do it with Gershon Distenfeld, AB, co-head of Fixed Income. Gershon, fantastic to have you with us on the phone. Let's start there. Default risk. Let's just start with something extreme, the extreme tails. Talk to me about default risk in a moment like this. Well, look, I think we, we are in unprecedented times, John. You know, we've, we've spent the past decade plus talking about how the next downturn is not going to be 2008. All right, we keep on especially cautioning, you know, younger investors that don't remember the last recession before 2008, right? Don't remember a 102. The next downturn is not going to be 2008. The the reality is that, you know, well, of course it's not going to be 2008. The impact could very well be 2008 if we don't get a response on the fiscal side. You know, the the for certain industries, the economy is essentially shutting down. And that is, if we don't get the proper response on the fiscal side, we will see defaults in certain sectors spike. This is exactly what fix, what credit investors worry about. We worry about that left tail. We worry about over-levered companies, right, that for whatever reason, their business, their top line being shut down, uh, not being able to generate free cash flow to be able to meet their debt obligations. And that is going to be an increasing concern. And that's why you've seen uh, a lot of stress 
in in the credit markets over the past couple of weeks. Gershon, this quote came from Matt King over at Citigroup, and he wrote the following, with so much credit provided outside the banking system, it's very difficult to implement a system-wide payments freeze, which ensures all obligations are simply rolled over. The consequent tightening of conditions has a tendency to cascade through the rest of the system. This is an important point. I've been beating the drum with you, Gershon. We need a fiscal response and we need it quick. But there's going to be limits on how much this can cover. Yeah, but look, I, I think look, we're seeing who knows what the fiscal response is going to be, but we are seeing a lot of interesting proposals being floated out there. Um, you know, the easy one is, is helicopter money, right? We just write a check to everybody. The the problem with that is it it, it ends up not being targeted to the places that I mean it, it helps the consumer obviously, and there's a lot of value to that. We're seeing some unconventional proposals. You know, maybe you start saying the government should be the buyer of last resort, should prop up certain industries, should, you know, basically guarantee that airlines fill seats. And if they don't, they uh, the government hands them the revenue. Um, there's other kinds of proposals that are being floated around there. You know, it, it's, it's going to take some creative thinking, and it's going to have to happen fast, because what we're seeing right now is, and I heard you say it earlier, John, fear is taking over. Um, we are shutting down large segments of the economy, and there's going to have to be a fiscal response. It's great that uh, you know, monetary policy is doing what they can, and they're supposed to do what they can. But this is not a demand problem. This is a supply problem, and it requires a different response. Gershon, uh, we're talking about credit, and we should just say there is sort of a dual shock here, too, with the oil complex in particular getting hit as oil prices decline. And I'm wondering, though, the technical action. I want to go from the fundamental to the technical picture. ETFs in particular saw unprecedented outflows in the past few weeks, and people are worried about a spiral, that these that these ETFs are being traded frequently for liquidity, and that as their prices go down, they have to sell underlying assets, the sales end up driving driving prices down even further, and the cycle goes. How close are we to that? You know, it's interesting. We're seeing that in the ETFs. I, I will counter that. What we're not seeing it yet is in fund flows, which is an interesting dichotomy. You know, past sell-offs of this, even of lesser magnitude than this, we saw much more panic from the end investor in mutual funds, both in the U.S. and offshore. And I'm not saying we're not seeing any outflows. Of course, we are. But it's not of the magnitude we saw previously. And I think that's interesting. Um, look, it, it's, been, it's, it's been kind of orderly. And if you look at you know, one of my favorite topics, Lisa, is the relationship between high yield and equities. And you know, if, with equities being down, you know, they were down, I guess, 27% from the peak with the rally back on uh, – on Friday, I guess down 22 or something like that, and we'll probably be back down to that 27% when we open. You know, high yields down about 12% from the peak, roughly half. That's typically what you see. So the price actually would indicate that it's somewhat orderly. They're actually, even before the rally on Friday, liquidity was okay in the high yield market. Stuff was down. So it's, it's becoming orderly. You know, at some point, if the outflows are are sufficient, whether it's from ETFs or it's from kind of real money mutual funds, that could cause a problem in liquidity. And that's something that we're, we're looking at very carefully. You know, the fact that it was difficult to sell off-the-run treasuries back on Thursday, something that wasn't the case even in the worst time of 08, is something that is concerning to us and should be concerning to most market participants. Gershon, let's talk about that and what the Fed can do to help alleviate some of that stress right now. What can they do? Are they doing enough? I, look, they, they've they've done you know they've announced 
two things since that happened on Thursday, and that's the question. We'll see. We'll see what happens today. Um, they're doing everything they can. They're they're opening up the window. They're buying they're buying back uh, treasuries ac- across the curve. Uh, that has helped, uh, but that's that's a danger to the market when you when even the thing that's supposed to be the most liquid market in the world is experiencing liquidity issues. Uh, that should raise concerns. And there might have to be more action that has to be taken. Gershon, I want to finish with just a quick word on portfolio construction. And I'll try and keep this as simple as possible for the majority of our audience that may not be Wall Street professionals. You've always compared, for me at least when we've talked, historically speaking, about how credit performs in a downturn as part of a portfolio and how equity performs in that downturn too. Walk me through that historically and how you think that may or may not be the same this time around. Yeah, so historically, equities and credit perform in, they go in the same direction. They're highly correlated. In other words, when equities do well, credit does well. And when equities do poorly, credit does poorly, except the magnitude is different. So, for example, last year, when equities had a very strong return, uh, you know, 25, 30%, depending on what type of equities, high yield did 10 or 15, depending on what type of high yield. And in the sell off here, as I mentioned before to Lisa, uh, equities were, have been down 20 to 30%, and high yields only down 10, 12%. That relationship should continue. Now, it, if if the worst happens and we see a massive spike in defaults, maybe credit does a little bit worse on that on that score. But that relationship holds pretty, pretty well. The one nice thing about credit, especially high-yield credit, is your yield is actually a very good predictor of your intermediate-term performance. If you chart your yield to worst at a given time and in the next five years annualized return, it's almost spooky how accurate that is. So if you take today's starting yield of somewhere in like the eight, eight and a half percent range, that is likely through through all the volatility we're gonna see, if you invest today, you're likely to get somewhere around an eight percent annualized return over the next five years. There's gonna be a lot of volatility in between. I imagine a lot of that volatility is coming up front. Gershon, fantastic to catch up with you. Gershon Distenfeld there, AP co-head of fixed income on the credit market, not just in the US, but some of these worldwide issues as well. Joining us on the phone, Steve England of Standard Chartered Bank, Managing Director to weigh in on foreign exchange. Steve, we have some dollar weakness. Is it fair to say that dollar weakness has been engineered by a major rate cut of the Fed? Uh, a major rate cut by the Fed and the major change in expectations, I think, in the market with respect to where rate differentials are going to be over the medium and long term. I, I think that the with this move, the market is convinced that you know we're not going to see uh, the U.S. rates really having nearly as big a rate, uh, rate advantage as they have had over the last couple of years. Going forward, how important is it this sort of dollar swap line that the Federal Reserve set up? I mean, how much will that cushion the blow that we've seen just in terms of the uh, the bid for dollars and some of the liquidity issues of last week? You know, I, look, it's not going to fix anything in the sense that it it won't improve the economic outcomes, but it will prevent um, financial market outcomes from making things worse. Um, you know, so far what we've seen is some of the uh, the basis risks come in a little bit, not very much. I think the markets will test the willingness of central banks to use these lines and use them in large size uh, before they're convinced that they don't have to worry about it. Steve, I want to bring up something that I think is becoming a little bit delicate, and it's over in Europe. I don't think we're back onto the re-denomination risk 
genie out of the bottle story, but I do think we've got a story over in Italy where the ECB really failed last Thursday in that news conference to do anything about building up confidence on the periphery. The two-year yields up 18 basis points on the session, albeit we're still south of 1%, but the direction of travel, Steve, is not encouraging. Do we start to think about some of these issues? Do they creep back into the discussion? Well, if they do, they're going to make things a lot worse because you know we, we have enough risk premium in the market already to add some more because of political risk. Um, it would be doing unnecessary damage. I think that the expectation and hope is that they're going to finally throw in the towel and say this is such a crisis that each country should do what it has to do on the fiscal side. Um, and the ECB... You know, continue to do what it um, what it has been doing on, on on the monetary side. I don't think Lagarde really meant to to sort of dismiss the the spread issues. I think it just came out sounding wrong. Stephen, there's also a question going forward: At what point will uh, currency markets care about the money printing that? developed markets seem to be on the cusp of doing that might be unprecedented in size. Certainly people are saying it should be, whether it's helicopter money or anything else. There was a time when that used to debase the currency. Is that time over or are we going to return to a time where that actually starts to matter? I I think eventually there's going to be a debate if this lasts for a long time. I, I think correctly the market is thinking that if we're talking about a three or six month period in which, um, production is, is, is impaired, even if it's sharply impaired, the demand risk and the disinflationary risk is, is more important than the money printing risk. If this is a longer term question where supply is impaired over a period of years and they print money and try and maintain demand, the inflation outcomes may be different. Steve, great to catch up with you this morning. Steve Englander there of Standard Chartered on a really delicate moment worldwide on the issue of the ECB and President Lagarde's performance last Thursday, reportedly in the Financial Times apologising to several members of the governing council for some of the mistakes she made in that particular news conference. Now, I'm not sure. In fact, I know on the record that the ECB is not characterising the performance on Thursday as a mistake. But according to the Financial Times, it appears she did apologise to several governing council members. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.